Fake Podcast Music. Da, 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 da. Dun, dun. Hello, and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other random mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. Okay, so Jen, I wanted to talk about how um, the middle finger needs to be the new OK symbol right? Uh, in text. You've already done that. Yeah, well, we, we've been sending OK symbols back and forth to each other. But then we were in a group text with people who didn't know that we were giving each other the finger as an okay symbol, which I thought was hilarious. And I was pissing myself because I'm imagining what the other people in the chat room are thinking when my husband ruins everything and tells them that we're giving each other the finger every time we mean to say okay. Yeah. And I just want to be like, and he wasn't sure if he was okay with that. Yeah, and he's like, I don't know how I feel about that. Not just gave him the finger. Yeah. <laughs> like, What's up? I was like, you ruined the joke, Michael. You made me sad in my heart of hearts. <laughs> so what's your uh, article about today? A son who murdered his mother, Nada, N-A-D-A. And I'm having a hard time with her last name. It's H U. R-A-N-I-C-H. Ernich? I didn't want to murder it. Uh, I get it. I got in trouble in that one comment. Okay, I thought you had the best answer when he said for you mispronouncing the word. He wanted to give you two thumbs down and you were like, just press it twice. (laughs) Yeah. So if you guys don't know, we're on YouTube and we got him. My my first critique. Yeah. That his name was Stephen, not Stefan. Yeah. And you know my argument to that is what's it one it could have been stefan see okay and i it's not like i'm watching television oh, right. or news or youtube videos to find these articles i'm reading them yeah you know what i mean me too i can't tell you how many words that um i read them and i think i know th- okay so one time i was talking to my mom and i said something about this book i was reading and i said machismo and my mom's like, what? I was like, machismo? My mom's like, it's machismo. And I was like, oh. <laughs> That's great. So, I mean, I did feel bad. I mean, Or horse divorce instead of hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> oh, goodness. I did feel bad. I mean, the the man was murdered. Yeah. So, I, I did feel bad when I seen the comment. Oh, wow. But I, you know. You could have been nicer with it, though. The nicer correction. Yeah, the nicer correction. But yeah. I can't, I thought my, I do think my response was good. I thought it was very funny. I want to tell you about, um, so people, uh, on more than one occasion, someone suggested that we do um, John Norman Collins, who's also known as, he's got a few names, the Ypsilanti Ripper, the co-ed killer, the Michigan murderer. But I decided first, I will do that. But first I'm going to do one on the people that were killed that were originally thought to be one of his victims, but were proven later to not be. Okay. You want to go first? It's up to you. Hit me with your best shot. Okay. So, we're going to... So, her name is N-A-D-A. Nada? Nada. Uh-huh. Okay, that's what we're going with. All right. Nada's son, Muhammad, okay. age 16, was accused of murdering his mother on August 21st, 2017. Oh, wow. She was found on the back patio of her home. And a little... Let's give you a little background. Okay. Nada. Nada. Okay. 
had divorced her husband in 2016. Her husband was said to be a traditional Muslim and was abusive towards her. He didn't like how she embraced the American ways and how it was affecting his children too. Muhammad was said to be a lot like his father and didn't like how she embraced it either. Okay. When the police first arrived on the scene, they believed it may have been accidental that she fell from a third floor open window of their home. Okay. After investigating further, they believed her son had been involved in it. Like he pushed her out? Yep, then he pushed her out. Dang. After the autopsy, it was confirmed she was dead before she fell from the window. Oh, shit. Yep, it was believed the son suffocated her, then pushed her out the window. He was charged with first-degree premeditated murder. And the trial for Muhammad was adjourned while his attorney took the issue of suppressing the video and statements his client had made to the Michigan Court of Appeals. Because the judge in the case denied that request. Oh, wow. So they were in, started the trial. The judge denied it. And so they postponed the trial so he could go to the Court of Appeals to try to get this suppressed. Okay. Currently, it is still, from my understanding, because I've looked everywhere. Okay. It's still in the Court of Appeals. And he is currently still being held in the Oakland County Children's Village. Oh, wow. Which must be the institute. They call it a village. Yes. they, they probably a jail? Yeah. I remember at one point there was a place called Boys Town where you went. Really? Yeah. They called it, it was called Boys Town? Boys Town, yeah. Yeah. I actually was in the area once, and but I have such a shitty memory. I'm like, it's I mean, in Michigan. I mean. <laughs> I guess you don't want it to be like, oh, you're buying a house, and right, it's right next to the jail. No, it's right next to Boys Town. Right next to the kitty jail. Well, it's not really kitty jail because some teenagers are like adult sized. Yeah. So we have to watch this one. But I thought it was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, like especially he... that it's taken so long. But I guess you can't really complain that he's not getting a speedy trial because they stopped it in order to appeal. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah. So I'm going to tell you about three women that were murdered that at first they believed it was John Norman Collins, the Ypsilanti Ripper, who they were murdered during his crime spree. All three of them. And at very the first glance, and sometimes for decades, they think it's John that kills them. But then we find out later through different evidence, whatever, that um, it was a different murderer altogether. But first things first, I need to tell you that in 1969, they put accused felons' home addresses in the newspaper. It just seemed crazy to me. Like wow, say, I think that's like, great. No. So say they thought you killed your son. They'd be like, Jen King who lives at 123 Sesame Street, you know, blah, 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 and, and you know, Ypsilanti or whatever. Like, what? What? Also, You weren't accused, even guilty. You're not... just accused. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I, I just thought, what? I'm glad we stopped that practice. <laughs> so I was like, that's how people get hurt, man. But Margaret Ann Phillips was 25. You know, oh. Those... You no, know, that's like the 50th ringing? time. That's like the 50th time I got caught. And I bet you it's my husband. Thanks, honey. <laughs> and then you know what he's the one person that knows we're recording and I, I love yeah him. but you yeah. didn't you didn't turn it off absolutely I'll and this is my oh, punishment now you is that it goes another... off that it goes off twice don't worry everybody yeah <laughs> shouldn't you answer him nope I'm gonna finish what I'm doing <laughs>
Or you could press pause. No, I'm not. You then should no, just answer them. No. <laughs> okay, so marketing. I'll Phillips. push pause. Hold on. All right. Stand by, everyone. <laughs> and we're back. Da da da. Okay, so the first person, Margaret Ann Phillips, and she was 25 years old. She was working on her doctorate in sociology. She liked to work with people in like a counseling type role. And she focused some of her time on a man that was being called the co-ed killer and who had attacked several women and was not caught yet. So he's still on the loose. On Saturday, July 5th, 1969, Margaret was found shot and unconscious in her apartment. Margaret had been shot three times, twice in the head and once in the hand with a 22 caliber pistol. And she uh, remained alive for almost a full day before succumbing to her wounds, never regaining consciousness. So I read two different reports of what happened when Margaret was in the hospital. So I didn't know what to believe. One, in order to flush out the killer, police told reporters that she was in fair condition and providing them information, hoping to force the killer's hand. That, you know, they said she's alive and telling them what happened. And two was, in order to flush out the killer, police told reporters that she'd uttered two wars be words before dying, hoping to force her killer's hand. So I don't know. Because I'm reading newspapers from 1969 and they're not telling different stories. So Margaret's death was initially thought to be linked to the co-ed killer due to her research and the fact that the other victims of the killer, a couple of the other victims, had been shot with a 22. Margaret's dad told reporters that Margaret had said um, that she had information against the killer that would, quote, shock the nation. Margaret was also an acquaintance with one of the victims of the serial killer who had been killed the previous month. So, however, a man named, I keep saying so, but I meant to say however. However, a man <laughs> named Ernest Bishop would be found guilty of the crime. Margaret was working with Ernest, rehabilitating him back into society as Ernest was an ex-convict. Ernest had served time in Jackson, Michigan, a prison for rape. Ernest went to Margaret's apartment where she served him coffee and she drank lemonade. And while Margaret was sitting on her bed, Ernest pulled out a gun and shot at Margaret three times. Whoa. The bullet, yeah, that went through Margaret's hand was found in the wall of her bedroom. And Ernest's fingerprints were found on the coffee cup. So a family friend of Ernest named Clifford Shoecraft told police that Ernest had confessed to seeing Margaret killed. But Ernest said it was done by a man named Dave. Ernest asked Clifford for a ride when they were driving down northbound US 23 and he had him pull over. And Ernest then threw a 22 caliber pistol into the Huron River below. On Monday, July 7th, 1969, divers were combing through the Huron River while Ernest R. Bishop was being charged with murder. And that was the article that said where he lived on Grove Street, like wow. 318 North Grove Street. And I was like, holy shit, you just said where he lives. Oh, my God. And he wasn't even found guilty yet. He was just being charged. Hmm. Holy shit. Michigan State Police divers did find the weapon in the water. So they did find the gun in the river. Um, I couldn't find if the gun in the river had ballistics that matched the bullet in the wall or her skull. But I do know that they found the gun. So Ernest was declared was cleared of the murders of the other victims of the co-ed killer because he'd been in prison at the time of their deaths. So they're like, okay, he killed Margaret, but not the other girls. Yeah. Ernest was found not guilty by a reason of insanity, and he was sent to Ionia State Mental Hospital until he either died or he was cured. That's what it basically said in the uh, article. John Norman Collins, who would later be convicted as the co-ed killer, 
and he's the next subject of my, you know, next podcast, had his serial murder case put on hold as Judge Conlin needed to first oversee the trial of Ernest Bishop. So his was put on hold so that he could oversee mm. Ernest's trial. So then there's also the murder of Gloria Murphy. So Gloria Murphy was 19 years old when she was found murdered on December 9th, 1969. Gloria had been stabbed to death in her bed in her student housing apartment in University Towers in Ann Arbor. She had been stabbed 34 times. Gloria's husband was a University of Michigan student and Gloria was originally from Dearborn, Michigan. Gloria was found by her husband, James, when he returned home from classes and studying around 1.30 in the afternoon, and their two-week-old was unharmed at the foot of their bed. James was not originally suspected, police thinking it may have been another strike by the co-ed killer. However, they then realized that there was no forced entry and nothing was taken from the home, which is always curious. Why does someone break into your house just to kill you? She also wasn't raped. That's something that the co-ed killer did. He raped his victims. So James did submit to a lie detector test at the state police office, and then he was brought to St. Joseph Mercy Hospital due to emotional distress. And while at the hospital, James confessed to his dad within the hearing of officers that he killed his wife. Oh, wow. Yeah. James was due to graduate from U of M the following week, but instead was taken into custody. James was 22 years old at the time. The last Thursday in August of 1970, James was found guilty by a reason of insanity. Like Ernest, B Ernest Bishop, he was sent to Ionia State Mental Hospital either until he died or was cured. Yeah. Well, who's ever going to say they're cured? I know. Well, not to be the most suspect person in the world, but Ernest Bishop is black and James is white. And I thought that James had a better chance of getting out than Ernest does. Hmm. Yeah. So here's the last one, the murder of Jane Mixer. This one's pretty popular because for decades she was thought to be known by, uh, murdered by John Norman Collins and later on another guy's convicted. So Jane Mixer was 23 years old and a student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor where she was murdered. So she had been the valedictorian of her high school and was working on becoming a lawyer for social justice. In March of 1969, Jane had posted a note on a college rideshare bulletin board at the University of Michigan ahead of spring break. She was looking for a ride to her hometown located in Muskegon, Michigan, which is across the state. Jane talked to her father on the phone, letting him know that a student named David Johnson had answered her post. Jane's body was found March 21st, 1969, just west of Ann Arbor in a cemetery. A woman who lived near the cemetery saw her body and called the police. Jane had died after being garroted by a nylon stocking, one that did not belong to her, as well as being shot with a 22 twice in her head. Her jumper had put, been pulled down, uh, pulled around her waist to expose her, her genital area, as well as her nylons being pulled down, and her yellow raincoat was laid over her body, and her body was laid on top of a grave. Her own copy of a book called Catch-22 was carefully placed next to her body along with her shoes. Hmm. So, there was a student at U of M named David Johnson, but he had an alibi. He was acting in a play that night. So, everybody saw the play. It was a big student play, the student union or whatever. So, everybody knew where David Johnson was. Jane was murdered during John Norman Collins' spree as Michigan's murder, causing her death to be attributed to him. 
There were deviations from John's kill pattern, however, such as Jane had not been beaten or stabbed, which he did, and she was not sexually molested, which he also did. John dumped the bodies of his victims, but Jane had her personal items neatly arranged, as well as her body being neatly arranged. Like somebody cared about her. Yeah, like somebody was displaying her purposely in a way that they liked even. Mm -hmm. So in 2002... Michigan State Detective Sergeant Eric Schroeder was looking for a case in which he could use DNA testing, and he noticed the deviation in the kill pattern for Jane. Evidence that had been saved from Jane's murder included the pantyhose, which had residue from three sweat drops. There was also a single sweat, a single drop of blood that had been on her hand. The testing from those items pointed to someone who was not John Norman Collins. A phone book in one of the U of M dorms had the handwritten words Mixer and Muskegon, and John was an EMU student, so that also doesn't fit, right? Mm-hmm. So Gary Lederman was 62 years old in the fall of 2004 when the DNA match led to him. Gary had grown up outside of Detroit and lived near Ann Arbor for you know, a while. He had also worked as a traveling salesman in the area during the late 1960s. He was, oh, yeah, And in the 1960s, he's in his 20s. Okay. Okay, so Gary had been arrested in 2001 for forging prescriptions to pain medication. Police had found blank prescriptions in Gary's car after he'd stolen them from his job at a Kalamazoo hospital. And as a felon, he had been required to give DNA under state law, which had gone into effect three days before his conviction. So three days before this guy's convicted, this law goes into effect that says anybody that's convicted as a felon has to give a DNA sample. So while police searched Gary's home, they found two Polaroid pictures of a 16-year-old South Korean girl that lived with Gary and his wife as an exchange student. In the picture, the girl had been drugged unconscious. She was laying on Gary's bed with her clothes pulled back to expose her genitals, and it was said to mimic the same pose that Jane Mixer had been left in. Gary pled guilty to the child pornography charges before going to trial for the murder charges. Hmm. So the two handwritten words, Mixer and Muskegon, were linked to Gary's handwriting. Gary's roommate in 1969 testified that Gary did own a 22 caliber gun at the time of Jane's death. In 1987, Gary reported a 22 caliber pistol being stolen from his house. The roommate also claimed that Gary kept an archive of clippings from articles about the silica, sil, sil, blah, blah, <laughs> the serial, fuck, that's really hard right now, serial killer in the area, John Norman Collins. Gary also bragged to his roommate that he had access to drugs that could render a woman render a woman unconscious with one drop. The sweat on the nylons belonged to Gary Lederman. So here's where the problem is: the blood on Jane's hand was linked through DNA, DNA to John Ruelas. Ruelas, I don't know. John is currently serving a life sentence for un, an unrelated murder. The issue is with the DNA match is that John was four years old in 1969. So Gary's defense attorney, Gary Gabry, Gary Lederman's defense attorney is also named Gary, claims that this is proof that the DNA samples were contaminated either by police or in the lab and then so that they can't be trusted. Gary Lederman was still convicted of murder after a jury deliberated for five hours. They believe the truth was in the DNA on the nylons. On August 30th, 2005, Gary was sentenced to life in prison. Jane's 90-year-old father was alive to witness the conviction, and he was sobbing in the courtroom. There's a website that is in favor of Gary's innocence. Okay, 
So they mentioned that he's a retired nurse, a grandfather, and that he once um, was on the school board. But you could be a terrible person and do all those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Remember you did that thing about um, Andrew Kehoe, who had the largest school massacre with the bomb? Yeah. He was on the school board. That doesn't make you a good person. Yeah. It just makes you on the school board. Yeah, I, I, wrote, I wrote down, what about the fact that he was a convicted thief, he was a felon, and he was a convicted child molester? Yeah. What about that article? Right. <laughs> I was so mad. I was like, don't you defend him? <laughs> So you've been listening to Michigan Another Mayhem with Allie. And Jen. You can connect with us at Michigan Another Mayhem to join the conversation, listen to the podcast, access the show notes, find site links, or correct us when necessary. Rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Anchor, and YouTube. Bye-bye now.